Welcome to this month's edition of Into Beef. I'm Kelly Sheese, President-Elect of the Indiana Beef Cattle Association, and we're proud to bring you this podcast on behalf of Indiana's cattle producers. It's June, and with that brings some timely topics, and it's only appropriate that we bring on board uh, one of our state's most respected and best agencies, and that's the Board of Animal Health. We'd like to welcome Dr. Brett Marsh, State Veterinarian with the Board of Animal Health, for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Marsh. Well, thank you for the invitation. So let's start off with an extremely timely topic. I believe on June 11th of this month, the remaining 4% of medically important antibiotics that are currently over the counter will transition to prescription. Dr. Marsh, what are some of the important antibiotics that are included in this and how does this affect cattle producers in our state? Well, this is very important for our cattle producers because of this uh, change from the Food and Drug Administration effective June the 11th. And products like these, penicillin, tetracycline, oxytetracycline, tylosin, spectinomycin are on the list of medically important antibiotics that after June the 11th of this year will require a prescription from a veterinarian. So if our cattle producers are used to buying it through catalogs or getting it at a farm supply store, after June the 11th, it'll be restricted to a prescription product. And they can still buy it at that farm supply store or through a catalog, but they need that prescription on hand to be able to do so, correct? That's correct, exactly. And they'll need to check ahead with their supply stores or catalogs because some of them may have chosen not to continue to offer those products because of this change. So they'll need to check ahead and see if that's still an option. But nonetheless, uh, as you've indicated, these last of the medically important antibiotics, many of them were previously covered in a previous action under the Veterinary Feed Directive in 2017. So these are the final products, the injectables that are now going into a prescription status. And one of the critical aspects of this is an important uh, veterinary client relationship. Realizing that importance, we also know that in some areas, of the state accessibility to large animal vets may be limited. If a producer maybe doesn't have that relationship with a veterinarian, kind of a two-part question, um, maybe how do they pursue that? But they, if they're, you know, in a, in a bind, can they share prescription antibiotics with their neighbor? No, they cannot. They cannot legally share that prescription. It's been written specifically for a producer and his animal, his or her animals and not for others. So that script is specific for that site, for those animals. And I appreciate what uh, your concern with regard to the veterinarian client patient relationship. We had similar questions and concerns in 2017 with the rollout of the veterinary feed directive, which covered the, the feed and water placed antibiotics. And I know that a number of veterinarians went to extra efforts to provide inspections of animals and establishing that veterinarian client patient relationship so producers had access to these products. I know some veterinarians, for example, was scheduled to be in a particular area of the state or counties so that they could see clients and at least establish that initial relationship. And then once it's established, then scripts can be written from that initial uh, site visit. So it's important that producers have that in place so they can continue to receive access to these products through prescription. But to your point, we realize there are some areas of the state that that could be more challenging. So they'll need to, frankly, start now to establish those relationships. 
So planning ahead and preparation is key. And we also know that as part of this directive, record keeping is very important. How long do both producers and veterinarians need to keep records of these antibiotics? And does the directive also require a vet to each uh, examine each animal before prescribing an antibiotic? Yeah, those are great questions. It, it does not require a veterinarian to examine each animal. So it may be on a herd basis. Uh, so a herd of cattle, for example, so it may not be for each individual animal. But nonetheless, through establishing that veterinarian-client-patient relationship, the veterinarian will be familiar with the herd, their herd owner, their management practices, et cetera. Uh, record-keeping in this specific directive, there isn't a time requirement, but generally FDA has a guideline for two years. And so it's important that producers and veterinarians maintain these records of what animals have been treated with which products is going to be critically important. And of course, that's always important for us here at the Board of Animal Health because we collaborate with the Food and Drug Administration if there should happen to be a residue in an animal at slaughter. And so those records are going to be critical if there's a trace back to a producer to see which product was used and what uh, timeline it may have been used uh, on that animal. So record keeping, again, two years by the FDA guidance. Absolutely. Good practices for our industry and not even as long as we have to keep records for tax purposes. So two years isn't bad at all, really. Yes. The majority of of medically important antibiotics, and you referred to this, Dr. Marsh, a little bit, have been under this directive for some time. How has that process been working here in Indiana and for our industry as a whole, would you say? I, I think the industry has really done a remarkable job. It was a major shift in 2017 with the veterinary feed directive that came down from FDA. The concern generally for these products has been that since they're medically important antibiotics, they're important for you and I as people, and therefore we want to make sure that uh, they are available for not only our animal populations, but for use in, in humans as well. So the FDA has been on this process for a number of years. Uh, the veterinary feed directive, I think, worked quite well. Uh, producers are very responsive to the request, establish the veterinary and client-patient relationships, and I think overall it has worked quite well. I know it took some time to kind of get through that process, and similarly we'll have that period of time with these injectable products, but I, I applaud producers and their preparedness and, and making plans in advance to, to respond to this new directive. Great. And and in the end, it's what's best for our industry and both the people and the animals as well. So I I appreciate that insight, Dr. Marsh. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about something I think we were all hoping we might avoid for at least a little bit longer. I know Dr. Bruce Lamb, uh, whom you work with there at BOA, told our board last fall, it's not if, but when this happens. And it seems that that when may have happened here rather recently, and that's the appearance of the Asian longhorn tick in Indiana. Can you give us a little snapshot about this invasive species and where it made its appearance? Yeah, and Dr. Lamb was correct. It has indeed appeared. Uh, the Board of Animal Health released a notice uh, the end of last month, the end of May, about the first diagnosis of Asian longhorn tick here in Indiana. It was in, uh, we had two locations in Switzerland County, and since that time, we now have a detection in Du Bois County. Uh, So that particular tick, they believe, has probably been in the United States as an invasive species since maybe 2010 or so. 
Uh, it actually comes from Eastern Asia. It's been diagnosed in Australia and New Zealand. And this tick, of course, is very small. Uh, it might be the size of a sesame seed. And then an engorged tick may be as big as a pea. So it, they're not huge ticks. Uh, and it's unique also in that the female does not need to mate to produce eggs for reproduction purposes. And so a female tick can produce up to 2,000 eggs at a time. And so they can populate an area with these ticks very quickly. We turn out to be the 19th state in the United States to have this detection. And it was actually done by our Department of Health. And so our State Department of Health has an ongoing tick surveillance program that's been in place for many years. And this uh, tick was detected initially again in Switzerland County and now more recently in Du Bois County uh, as a part of that ongoing surveillance program. So we appreciate their efforts. And uh, it crosses over not only from the human side but in our animal populations because these ticks love warm-blooded animals and so whether it's people or animals that will be their target and and based on some of the information we've seen so far we know that this tick spends most of its life on the ground off the host but um and specifically in relation to cattle that there has been some research done that it can reduce herd health and possibly spread diseases. Can you elaborate a little bit specifically on how it could affect cattle producers? Absolutely, and that's indeed you're correct. And one of the things about this uh, particular tick is and the diseases it may spread, uh, uh, thaliriosis is a disease that can be spread by these ticks. We've not found this to be the case so far here in the United States. But that particular disease produces anemia, poor performance in animals, abortion, and maybe even death by exsanguination. So there's sometimes in some parts of the world that there are so many ticks on an individual animal that it would actually exsanguinate an animal. So uh, it's, it's, it can be quite severe. Fortunately, we've not seen it to that level in the United States. Uh, for us here in Indiana, it would mimic what we would uh, more commonly think of as anaplasmosis. So if you're seeing animals that appear to be anemic and poor doing uh, and with a diagnosis through your veterinarian, uh, and if you might suspect anaplasmosis, it could be thaliriosis. And there is a test available at our ADDL at uh, Purdue to help with this diagnostic uh, uh, determination. So Fortunately, we've not seen some of these extreme effects here in the United States, but we know that they can be found in wildlife, and so it, it moves uh, across the landscape in, in animals. And to your point, uh, if, if pastures are cut shorter and, and uh, cattle are kept out of brush and observed, I think that's going to be some of the critical things we can do uh, dealing with this new tick identification. Great. You mentioned um, cutting pastures shorter, maybe fencing them out of, of wooded areas. Is there any type of um, other practices that producers can do, whether it be fly tags, whether it would be pour-ons, rub-ons, that might help serve as a preventative measure? Yeah, I think there are some tools out there, and I would suggest that producers contact their, their veterinarian for the best recommendations in their area. Uh, there, there are some uh, that I think could be effective for, for our producers. I think one of the primary things at this point is just observation of the cattle. Uh, if you're seeing unusual tick infestations uh, and would 
uh, like to get a determination on what kind of tick it is, uh, they can make contact here at BOA, and we'll collaborate with the Department of Health to make a, uh, a uh, identification of that specific tick. And so that's going to be an important measure for us as well. But there are some tools that are out there if you're working with your local veterinarian for the best recommendations in your situation. But if you're trying to determine which kind of tick it is, then Board of Animal Health and our Department of Health can help with that as well. Excellent information and certainly something for cattle producers in Indiana to stay informed about so they can continue to protect their herd and help reduce the impact and spread of the Asian longhorn tick. Dr. Marsh, in closing, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up probably one of the favorite points I've, I've heard you mention and several times that you've talked uh, to our cattle producer groups. You often mention a statistic that it, Indiana can be extremely proud of and is quite impressive. It relates to the size of Indiana and the number of livestock we have here. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that um, and uh, us being east of the Mississippi, what we, what we can brag about? Well, it, I appreciate you bringing it up. Uh, the Board of Animal Health produces a one-page annual report of activity through our office, and we refer to it as the placemat. And we often use it at meetings. And one of the things, to your point, that I think we can be extremely proud of is we are the smallest state geographically west of the Appalachian Mountains. So being the smallest state, geographically west of the Appalachian Mountains, we rank in the top five in several animal agricultural commodities. For example, we're number one in commercial duck production. We're number one in veal production, which is significant for the cattle industry. We're number two in eggs, and that's billions of eggs. We're number three in the pounds of turkey produced, and we're number five in pork production. So it's always amazing to me to be a rather small state out across the country, to be ranked in the top five in these major animal agriculture commodities. And I really applaud producers out across the state because there's some things happening in this state uh, that support all of that agricultural infrastructure and those numbers reflect it. And that's such a good story to tell. I know uh, I, I look forward to reading that annual report or placemat every year at our convention. and. I think that placemat uh, says a lot more just than that interesting statistic and that we're very fortunate in Indiana to have a board of animal health with the qualified staff that we do that deals with so much more than just a couple of the topics that we've talked today. Everything um, from companion animals to meat inspection to emergencies uh, that come on hand that we don't expect. So. Dr. Marsh, we thank you for joining us today and appreciate and applaud you and your staff for all the work that you do in Indiana on behalf of our industry and others. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you and it's, it's fun for me and those of us at the Board of Animal Health to work with great producers such as yourself out across our state. It's our great honor. Great. Well, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. And remember until next time, eat beef.